In early 1959, a group of Soviet hikers died under mysterious circumstances while hiking through the snowy Ural Mountains in what's now known as the Dyatlov Pass Incident. My name is Christina, and this is Cruel and Unusual. Tuesday and all that good stuff. Um, today's episode isn't really a case and it's not at all like my past episodes have been. I'm going to be telling you the chilling story of the unsolved, unexplained Dyatlov Pass incident. This is a really well-known story because the group of hikers that we're going to talk about were killed under such mysterious, crazy circumstances that it's really just left up to speculation on what we think may have happened. So I like to include snippets of news reports pertaining to the episode, but this actually happened in Russia, so yeah, I can't, I, I don't. I don't know how to find <laughs> Russian news stories and translate them and just, yeah. So it's just me today. Um, so let's get started. In late January of 1959, a 23-year-old man and very experienced hiker named Igor Dyatlov gathered a bunch of his friends and led an excursion through the northern Ural Mountains of Soviet Russia. So the name Dyatlov in Dyatlov Pass is not the geographical name, like it's not the name of the location where this happened, which is what I always thought. I never knew this man's name, so I always thought that that was the location's name, but it was named after... Um, this man Igor. So, Dyatlov gathered a group of seven men and two women, so including himself, there were ten hikers going on this trip. They were all about the same age, and they had met through school. They were students of the Ural Polytechnical Institute, where most of them were working towards degrees in engineering. The friends bonded over their expertise and their love for hiking. They were all super experienced hikers and skiers and really just survivalists. And they were actually, all of them were ranked in the second highest class of hiking. I know nothing about that. I didn't even know there were classes of hiking skill, but they were in the second highest one. That means nothing to me, but it sounds really cool and I don't know, that's just amazing. I'm going to play a recording of all of their full names because if I try to pronounce them all, it's just it's just going to be insulting. So I'm going to play recordings of the full name and then from here on out, I will just refer to them by their last name and I'll do my best pronunciations. So here are the names of everybody in the group, all, all 10 of the friends. 
Егор Дятлов, Юрий Дорошенко, Людмила Добинина, Джорджия Кривонишенко, Александр Колеватов, Зинейда Калмагрова, Растем Слободин, Найколы Бригноллес, Сеймон Золотарлов, Юрий Юдин. Yeah, okay. Those are the people we're going to be talking about today, and I'm going to do my best to pronounce them. They were planning to hike up to the peak of Mount Otorin in the Ural Mountains of Soviet Russia. Now, this is late January into early February in Russia. It is freezing temperatures, especially in the mountains. It was below zero. It was an objectively dangerous trip, but these 10 individuals had been on several journeys like this before, and this was not anything out of the ordinary for them. Like I said before, they were pretty high up in ranking and skill in hiking, so this was just kind of their thing. The only difference here was that they had just never been to this exact location before. And the mountain that they were going to, Otoran, was named by a native tribe in the area called the Manzi tribe, and when translated from their language means don't go there. I'm just, I'm just gonna leave it at that. It literally means do not go there, but okay. So the group was getting ready for their big trip. They packed a large tent, sleeping bags, ski gear, all your normal life stuff like water and whatever, um, and they also packed some journals and cameras. The expedition was expected to be about 220 miles long and would combine hiking, mountain climbing, and skiing. This literally sounds like my worst nightmare. This is a nightmare. Living in the freezing cold, I think in the area that they went to, it was getting as cold as negative 30 degrees at this time of year. And there, it's not even just living out there. You are exercising all day, every day. That, that is wild, but props to them because that's, that's amazing. The route that they were going to be taking for this was approved by the city's route commission, which was a requirement that needed to be met before the group was allowed to go. On January 23rd, they were given their route book with the stamp of approval they needed, and they headed out that same day. They arrived by train to the town of Ivdel, where they would spend the following night relaxing, eating, and resting up for their big day ahead. On January 27th, the hike began. Very shortly into the journey, though, Yuri Yudin, who was the final name listed from the recording earlier, he actually decided to leave the group and turn back he was struggling with knee pain and like just joint pain in his leg and figured it was not a good idea to continue and he headed back to the lodge and caught a train back home so it's a good thing that he did because he is the only survivor out of the 10 of them the nine remaining members continued on and on february 1st the group set up camp at the bottom of the Ooh, I don't know how to say this mountain. Okay, that mountain. The group set up camp at the bottom of this mountain slope on their way to Mount Otorin. 
it was on this night that something terrible caused the group to erupt into chaos. This right here, though, is already a strange fact. The fact that they set up camp at the bottom of a slope is really concerning and weird because they were all experienced hikers. They know that setting up your tent on a slope is dangerous in an area where an avalanche is possible. Yuri Yudin, the friend that left the trip early, speculated that the group maybe decided to set up camp on the slope because they didn't want to lose progress they had made by going back down to flat land. But okay, whatever. Let's keep going. This group was supposed to return home on or around February 12th. Friends and family weren't really worried right away because Dyatlov had told them it might take a little longer than expected. He wasn't exactly sure how long it would take. But when February 20th hit, the families of the hikers began to panic. They thought, okay, even if their trip had taken a little longer than expected to make it back home, eight extra days is too much. They contacted the police and they sent out helicopters and a rescue team. It took six days of search efforts to finally uncover the campsite at the bottom of the slope. What investigators found at this campsite was a terrifying and ominous scene. Police discovered what looked like an abandoned campsite at first. As they got a closer look, it was clear that something much scarier had gone on here. The tent was not only collapsed, it was destroyed. It was cut with several slashes, cutting it open from the inside. And inside the tent was all of the group's personal belongings and nearly all of their shoes. Investigators found nine different sets of footprints leading away from the tent in all different directions. Some of the prints were made by socks, some were made by people wearing just one shoe and one barefoot, and some were made by somebody wearing no shoes at all. So it was clear that whatever happened here woke all of the members up and caused them to frantically cut their way out of the tent and escape quickly leaving everything behind, even if that meant running away barefoot in negative 20, negative 30 degrees. Police followed the footsteps down to where they ended. It was at the edge of the wooded area, about a mile from the campsite. So this is the flat land that the group could have set up their campsite, but it was about a mile away, so they would have been backtracking a mile. So the footsteps ended at the edge of this wooded area, and this is where they finally found their first two bodies, those belonging to Krivonashenka and Doroshenka. The men were found laying flat, side by side, and wearing only their underwear. No shoes, no nothing else. This part is odd because I am almost positive that they were not sleeping in just their underwear in this negative degree weather. Something comes to mind here, a thing that's called paradoxical undressing. 
This is when humans experiencing severe hypothermia actually begin to feel extreme warmth soon before death and it results in people taking off their clothes in hopes to cool off. So that's just a weird tidbit I wanted to mention, so that's possibly what could have happened there with their clothes. So scattered around them were several branches that had broken off from a tree standing over them. This suggests that one or more of the hikers had attempted to climb the tree, maybe to escape from someone or from something. Investigators found traces of human skin and blood scraped along the tree's bark, so whoever was climbing this tree was doing so in a, in a rushed, frantic manner that they drew blood on it. A few feet away from their two bodies was evidence of a campfire with black ash covering a charred pile of wood, so it's believed that they had started a fire at some point before their death. Nearby, police uncovered three more bodies. These were the bodies of Dyatlov, Kolmogrova, and Slobodin. The three of them were all found frozen in positions that make them appear to have been crawling or running, perhaps to get back to their campsite. Um, so that's now five hikers that were found. So at this point, there were four missing. It took over two months for rescue teams and search parties to finally find the remaining four. On May 4th, 1959, in a ravine packed beneath about 13 feet of snow, the remaining four members were found altogether. They were only about 300 feet from where the first five hikers were found, but you couldn't see them in this ravine because of the new snow. The four members found in the ravine were Dubainina, Kolevatov, Zolotarvov, and Brignoles. 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 Okay. I'm so sorry. We're gonna go with that. They were dressed in more clothing than the rest of the hikers, possibly because garments had been taken from those who had died first to keep the ones that were still alive warmer. I don't know. So now I'm going to talk about the injuries and the causes of death of the hikers. Then I'll talk about the theories and possible explanations for what happened here on the night of February 1st, 1959. Because I know we're all thinking at this point it was probably an avalanche that caused the chaos and their eventual deaths, but evidence from the autopsies are so bizarre that it will literally send you into a spiral, so... Okay, first we'll talk about the first two hikers that were found, that's Krivinashenka and Doroshenka, who were found laying next to each other under the tree. Krivonashenka suffered extensive bruising all over his body, and the tops of both hands were missing patches of skin. And this skin was found inside of his own mouth. He also suffered a severe burn to his left leg, possibly when starting the fire. His cause of death was hypothermia. Doroshenka had several burns around his neck, and his face was covered with frozen blood. 
The rest of his body suffered abrasions and there was a gray foam found inside his mouth. Medical examiners explained that this could have been produced by the lungs um, due to an extreme pressure applied on the chest. The lungs can produce a fo like a gray foamy substance like that. Now we're at the three bodies that were found nearby. Dyatlov was found frozen, clutching a small tree branch against his chest with one hand, and his other hand was covering his face as if he was trying to block something or shield himself from something. And a super heartbreaking fact about this, like the way that he was found, was a printed photograph of Komogrova, who we're going to talk about next, was found on him. I don't know if he was holding it or it, it was just found with him. The two of them were dating at the time of their deaths, and he was found with a printed photograph of her. So just rip my heart out. I, that is so sad, so sweet, but so sad. He had no discernible injuries, and his cause of death was hypothermia. Next is Komogrova, who was also killed by hypothermia. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of information on the condition that her body was found in, but she was found covered with blood, and it was inconclusive as to whether it was her own or not. Then we have Slobodin, who was found lying face down. He had bruising, abrasions, and hemorrhaging all over his face and his body, likely caused by a blunt force trauma. He had defensive wounds on his hands, meaning he was likely physically fighting somebody at some point before he died. And he also had a severe fracture to the front of his skull. And lastly, he had no skin on the top of his right forearm. Just no skin. Um, but still, his cause of death was also ruled hypothermia. So the last four bodies that were found were actually not killed by hypothermia. All of their causes of death were linked to severe crushing of their chest. These deaths are so strange and gruesome, so proceed with caution. Dubainina was found with her mouth frozen wide open as if she was screaming. So investigators were able to notice right away that she was missing her tongue and she was missing both of her eyes and her upper lip. Her nose was completely smashed in, it was flattened. Um, she was wearing the most clothes out of all of the hikers. Her cause of death was a hemorrhage in her heart caused by extreme pressure applied to the chest. Zola Tarvov was also killed by internal injuries. His chest was crushed in and several ribs were broken. He was also missing both of his eyes. The injuries on his body are shockingly similar to Dubainina's and were actually so similar that experts later say it's unlikely that one single incident could have produced the injuries on both people. 
One last thing for him, he was found with a camera strapped around his neck. The final two hikers unfortunately don't have a lot of information given from their autopsies that I could find. Kolevitov, all we really know is his neck was severely bent to the side. I don't know if it was broken, but it was deformed and his chest was crushed in. And Brig Knowles had suffered several skull fractures and rib fractures. Um, so both are said to have died from internal injuries to the chest. If you remember, the group had brought some cameras along with them on their trip. One of the cameras, as well as all the diaries they brought, were never found. Some of the photos that were retrieved from the cameras found at the site are posted on my Instagram at cruel and unusual crime. Um, it's really sad. It's just, it's photos of the early days of their trip and they're, they look like they're just having a good time. They're laughing, they're smiling. It just looks like they're really enjoying themselves. And it's so sad to know that what happened not long after. So now it's time to break into all the theories and explanations about what may have happened here on February 1st. So the first one, the elephant in the room, an avalanche. We've all had this idea in our heads since the very beginning that this was probably just at the hands of an avalanche. So let's start there. The official cause of this incident was actually labeled an avalanche based off of the following points. The hikers made an emergent evacuation to the nearest flat ground. They attempted to take shelter in the woods. They started a fire to keep warm, um, etc. The burns on some of the hikers could be due to starting and maintaining the fire, and the blunt force traumas could be from the impact of the avalanche. This could also be why the hikers cut their way out of the tent, because maybe where the zipper opening was, it was blocked by snow, or the tent got turned over and the, yeah, the door was on the ground basically, so they had to cut their way out. Um, so that's a good a good possibility. However, evidence that contradicts this theory is pretty convincing to me. The location of the incident had no evidence of an avalanche. There are certain snow patterns and environmental debris, I guess, that you would expect to see if there had recently been an avalanche, but there was nothing. Additionally, Experts have reported that an avalanche would have actually caused different, more serious injuries than what the hikers had suffered. Hundreds of hikers have embarked on this exact trip since 1959, and not one other group had any problem with an avalanche or anything like it. There has actually never been an avalanche reported in this area since that time, or even before that time, but a study conducted on the physics of the terrain suggests that the area is actually very unlikely to have avalanche activity. And this, likely the strangest point out of all of them, is that the footprints that they saw in the snow were concluded to be footsteps made at a normal pace, 
not footsteps of people who were frantic and running for their lives. It was like normal walking pace. So if it was an avalanche, I feel like they would have been kind of moving a little faster, you know? Also, why, if it were an avalanche, why would Zola Tarvov have grabbed a camera and brought it with him? I don't know. Maybe I'm overanalyzing now, but that's just, I don't know. Okay, next. Um, other theories on what may have happened have to do with the military and the government. These ones are kind of strange. I don't know how I feel about them, but they, they give some, some points. They do have some points, but okay, I'll explain. I'll start by saying there were many reports made by the general public regarding sightings of orange, like orange glowing orbs in the sky the exact night of the Dyatlov Pass incident. So it was like people were seeing orange lights in the sky. This could have been caused by many things, but it's widely believed that it was due to some sort of military activity. In one hypothesis, the hikers were caught in the middle of a parachute mine exercise. I had no idea what a parachute mine was until researching this. I'd never even heard of it. But a parachute mine is basically an explosive device used in warfare. Um, they are essentially bombs dropped from airplanes that are carried down by parachutes until they explode. It is thought that the hikers were startled awake by the explosions and fled their tent. Parachute mines actually detonate while they're still in the air rather than, you know, once they hit the ground. So that actually aligns with the injury sustained by the hikers, heavy internal damage with little to no external trauma caused by, by the force. When the mines detonated in the sky, it could have produced the orange glow as well. So I guess it's possible that military groups were conducting a training with these parachute mines in the area because it's a remote area. There's generally no one else out there, especially in the, the dead of winter. So, okay, another one. Similarly, actually, another theory is regarding classified nuclear experimentation. Some people believe that the hikers veered off of their path unknowingly and stumbled upon something they weren't allowed to see. These theorists believe that individuals of the Soviet government killed the hikers to keep them quiet about whatever they witnessed. Then they staged an avalanche and destroyed the camera and the journals that the hikers had with them. Because like I said earlier, one of the cameras and all of the journals were never found. So far, this theory, I'm like, okay, no, what, what, what is, no. But in reports from medical examiners, the clothing found on the hikers tested positive for high amounts of radiation. The whole area was actually radioactive to some degree. I can't think of any other feasible explanation for that. And I guess you can say 
nuclear whatever can also be linked to the orange glow I mentioned before, the orange light in the sky. I also think it's weird that the clothing and the environment were even tested for radioactivity in the first place. I mean, why why would they have done that? Why would they even think to do that if if there wasn't some sort of, you know, feeling that it might be involved. So that is something to think about. This is actually the theory that Yuri Yudin, the the sole survivor, this is what he believed happened. Moving on, there are also speculations that these deaths were at the hands of the Manzi tribe, but the Manzi tribe by all accounts were peaceful people and there were no footprints anywhere in the snow aside from the nine hikers. Another thing about this is that the trauma inflicted on the hikers' bodies, particularly the the last four with the chest, you know, the, the chest trauma, it was found that the force was greater than any force a human could create. Investigators compared the force to like a car crash. So I think this theory is just kind of grasping at straws. I don't think it was this tribe that just came and murdered everybody. I, especially because the injuries to the chest could not have even been made by, by humans. So, but that is a theory that's out there. So the last two theories that I'm going to touch on, I'm not even going to really get into them because they're they're just kind of out there, you know? So some people believe that this was aliens or a yeti. So aliens or a yeti is responsible for the deaths. I'm just not going to waste any of our time talking about how aliens or an angry snow creature murdered these these poor people so um yeah but just so you know those theories exist truly and people believe them strongly i'm not going to um discredit them or shame anybody that believes in those things but in my personal opinion i do not think that's what happened i don't know i guess if i had to pick one I would say the parachute mines, I think. That is the most plausible to me. The explosion, maybe they thought it was an avalanche just by hearing the explosion of the parachute mines and the explosions from the air causing that much force on the bodies. I I really don't know. I don't have any sort of explanation for why Dubaininas tongue was removed. I have no explanation for why any of their eyes were removed. I really just... I don't know, and I don't think we'll ever know. It was ruled as an avalanche, so... A couple closing statements and facts that I have. The Dyatlov Foundation was started in 1999 with the help of Ural Polytechnical Institute. Their aim is to fund and execute further investigations into the case. The original members of this foundation 
They believe the deaths were the result of a secret military activity. So the parachute mines, the nuclear testing, something to that effect. A horror movie based on this event was released in 2013, and the plot is actually super interesting. Obviously fictional, it's about a group of American students that go to the exact location of the Dyatlov Pass incident, and something mysteriously similar happens to them. Like, while they are going to see the place for themselves after learning about the Dyatlov Pass incident, something happens to them as well. So that's all I know about it. I'm going to go watch it right after this. Um, and... Yuri Yudin, the sole survivor of the incident, passed away in 2013 at the age of 75. One last thing, there's actually a hiking superstition now to not hike in groups of nine people. So you need to hike in groups of eight or less or ten or more, anything but nine. Okay, so that is the true yet horrifying story of the Dyatlov Pass incident. Maybe it was an avalanche. Maybe it was the government. Maybe it was an evil, murderous yeti. I don't know. All I know is don't go hiking in the Ural Mountains, please. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next week.